0: Alright, I'm going to yell, and hopefully everyone can hear, and we'll be good. Could you please turn with me to Psalm 910, Psalm 910, or scroll with me, we're using the ESV, the English Standard Version, um, Psalm 910, if you've grown up in the church at all, this is probably a reasonably uh, well-known psalm to you. Um, or perhaps just simply the first line in the psalm is well-known to you, and you'll see that. And now Psalm 19 covers two different subjects, that of nature and that of scripture. Some of you might know this psalm is the place where we get a theological distinction between general revelation and special revelation. This psalm looks at two different ways that God speaks to us. And to, to summarize it, the psalmist contemplates the glory of God through two books, two words. The book of nature and the book of scripture. That's what this psalm is about. Let's read it uh, together. To the Choir Master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out throughout all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them... The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, buy them as your servant warned. In my Redeemer. This is the Word of God. This psalm is is written by David, and that means uh, King David. And I would just divide it up uh, very simply, it divides up into two parts. Uh, The first six uh, verses are talking about the Word of Nature. And then the second part is in verses 7 towards the end, which is speaking about the word of Scripture. See how it divides up very neatly. Um, And then at the end, in the last three verses, the word of Scripture is applied uh, in a prayer. This psalm is not like a prayer like many psalms are. There's only a small prayer at the end. This psalm is a, a contemplation. It is Theology, I would say, being done and contemplated and applied. Uh, so we will uh, look at that. There are, there are many things that we could we could get into with this psalm that are just very complicated. Um, but one thing I, I, I will say is that this psalm lays down something very critical and crucial in the Christian worldview. Some of you might have heard of something called metaphysics, right? Metaphysics seeks to understand that which transcends the physical realm that we can see, hear, taste, uh, touch, and feel. Some of us anyway, right? Um, but some of you got that joke, right? So metaphysics is trying to make sense of why is there anything? You've got dogs and Cats and stars and rivers and mountains and people. Why does anything exist? How do we explain reality? What is it that unifies everything that there is in the natural world? It's asking questions like, is it reason and logic that ultimately binds everything together together? I must fully admit I haven't read uh, too much on this subject, and as I was browsing the Wikipedia page for the theory of everything, it's just very interesting uh, how the world seeks to understand all that there is that we can see. Why is there anything at all? The Bible has an answer for that question. The Christian worldview Has an answer. I see Sprouls written, Christian theology has always said that this unifying principle is the creator who stands above all things. God is the one who makes sense of everything. This is what we believe. And Psalm 19 tells us that one of the ways that God reveals himself is through his creation. We're going to look at some of those words in the first six verses here, right? From verses one to six, uh, declare, proclaim, speech, knowledge, words, voice. Do we see those words? What this is saying is that nature and creation speaks about the glory of God and his handiwork. This message is loud. Right? It's boom. It's out there. It's loud. It's in caps lock. It's clear. It's very clear. It's straightforward. It's right there. It's constant. This message never stops coming. And it is universal. It is understood in every language. From the sentinel tribe in North India that has no contact with anyone outside of their own, to people in America and Europe and all over. The message is universal. Every language can understand this word, this word of nature. From the sun to the moon to the smallest of insects and bacteria, they shout a message to the world. That there is a God. And so what Psalm 19 tells us is that the word in the universe is a sermon about God's glory and his greatness. That is how we had to understand the beauty that we see in the creation. The creation shouts... If you think I'm loud, the creation is a million times louder. The creation shouts a message of loud, clear boldness and a message about a creator who's glorious and worthy of being worshiped. In verse three and four, uh, of Psalm 19, it says, there is no speech nor other words whose voice is not heard. Now some, some take that to mean that the creation doesn't speak with words, but that's not what it's saying. It doesn't make sense. It does say that the creation speaks, even though it's not audible with languages we know it. What this is saying is that its message is heard all over the world, and there is nowhere where this message is not heard. Paul and Barnabas, in Acts chapter 14, I remember preaching this in uh, 2017, Paul and Barnabas went into Lystra, which is an incredibly pagan culture with very little Jewish um, uh, influence at the time, and they went out on their mission trips. And if you might remember in Acts chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas were healing, and they're doing miracles, and they're trying to testify to the glory of God, and these people thought, oh great, we've got some Greek gods amongst us and they wanted to offer sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas. This is what Paul says in Acts 14, verse 15. He says, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from vain things to the living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet, he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your heart with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. So Paul was saying that the rain, that the crops, the food that you eat is testimony, it says it is a witness to the God that made all those things and is good to you, even in your rebellion against Him. And Psalm 19 in uh, verses, uh, verses three and four is actually quoted in Romans chapter 10. You know that, that passage that says preachers have got beautiful feet. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news? My feet are horrible, according to my wife, but, um, never mind. But that, What that is saying, and that's the reason why this psalm is quoted in Romans chapter 10, is saying that God has been preaching, God has been proclaiming, and this message that he exists has actually gone out to all people, and now you come with the message of the gospel afterwards. That's how Paul's using it. He's saying that the creation is a message about God that has been given to all people already. A sermon before the sermon, so to speak. That is how we must think of creation. God has made himself, God God has revealed himself to everyone indiscriminately. And I mean that. And that really helps us answer the question about, what about someone who's never heard the gospel? Well, they've been told there was a creator, they've been told there was a God. And that is the role of the church then, to take the good news of salvation to people that know there is a God, that see there is a God, even if they suppress that truth. Creation is the sermon before the gospel sermon. John Gill writes that nature shows God to be possessed of infinite knowledge and wisdom which he gives and shows to men. Nature is a continual declaration of the glory of God. When you go outside and look at the Manawatu River, or you go outside and look at Mount Ruapehu, or whatever it is, and you go for a walk somewhere in the bushes, we wonderful, we live in the most beautiful country on earth, right? That, that beauty is shouting to you a message about how glorious God is. Don't miss that. And verses four to six, we're told that the sun speaks. It's not talking like in that Teletubbies TV show, you know, the creepy, creepy little sun in the sky. It's not talking like that, right? But it's, it's saying something, right? It's saying something to us. And it uses two illustrations here. You got about a bridegroom leaving his chamber in a small village. Everyone in the village would see a bridegroom leaving his house on his wedding day on the way to the chapel to get married. Everyone would know it. That's what this illustration is. And then it says, everyone sees the strong man running his race with determination. It says, the sun is like a strong uh, runner. Racing forward with determination, it goes every single day. Everybody sees it. What this is saying is, you cannot deny it. You can't deny it. The rising and the setting of the sun testifies clearly to the Lord's work. I love this Spurgeon quote that I found. He calls the sun and the moon witnesses, right? He says, the witnesses above cannot be killed or silenced. From their elevated seats, they constantly preach the knowledge of God, unawed and unbiased by the judgment of men. You know what you say when you say something and you don't care what everyone else thinks about what you say? The sun's like that. It's saying something and it doesn't care if you think differently. It keeps preaching its message day after day after day. Nothing avoids the sun's heat, meaning nothing avoids God's judgment. The sun is not ultimate. The moon is not ultimate. Jupiter is not ultimate. God is ultimate in this universal language that is being spoken. We're told, however, in Scripture that there are at least two different ways People fail to listen to this message, fail to acknowledge this loud, clear, universal message. One such way is by suppressing the truth by worshiping creature instead of creator. And that's why we read from uh, Romans 1, right? It says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And this tells us that certain people will rather worship creation than the one who created all things. They will look at things in their lust and in their idolatry and deny the reality of the Creator. They will see the sun and they will say, this happened not because of the God. It exists in some other way. That is one such way, but suppressing the truth. But another way see, we see in Scripture is by constructing alternate gods, alternate creators. This happens in uh, in Daniel chapter 3. We've got Nebuchadnezzar setting up his statue. He sets himself up as a god. And when you go read Daniel, he's setting himself up as an alternate creator. He's doing everything he possibly can to suppress and show that the God of the Bible is not the true God, but instead it is who he says is God. The Egyptian pharaoh does this. Baal, right? The prophets of Baal. Baal, alternate creator. He brings rain. Not the God of the Bible. Molech. Sacrifice babies to Molech. As alternate creator. That's one such way um, that people try and suppress this message from creation. And we might say that we have, in this day and age, in our secular age, moved beyond such futility. We're not bowing down to Egyptian pharaohs or Caesar or Baal. But in our day, in our culture, it is common for, for, for something called scientific naturalism, right? Which is believing... In a sense that we evolve without a creator. That there is nothing sitting there outside that explains the creation. That too is wrong. That too is wrong. Why is there anything? Because God. Why does it hold together? Because God. Why can you have joy and happiness and tears? Because God. So this is God's first word. His second word is the word of Scripture from verses 7 to 11. And you see in verse 7 it says, The law of the Lord is perfect. And I I, I want to say that this very likely is just a summary, not of the first five books of the Old Testament called the Torah, not the law of the Ten Commandments. This is just talking about the teaching of Scripture. Right? At the time of writing, this was talking about the Old Testament, but in the New Testament we see that it is all one book, the truthfulness of it all. The word law is often used to just talk about the totality and teaching of Scripture as a whole. Isaiah 8.20. To the teaching, to the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. It calls the whole of Scripture God's Teaching, O oh God's law. The New Testament tells us in 2 Timothy three sixteen that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man and woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. It's the word of nature and the word of Scripture. This is the narrative history of the Bible, or the prayers. The Psalms, the laws, and the gospel, the good news of salvation. And in this original context here in Psalm 19, this was given, and we can't lose sight of this, this was given specifically to the Jews. They were peculiarly called God's people and and given something called the Old Covenant. So the word of nature is going out to everybody, but the special revelation is given to a particular people for a time. One nation. And the New Testament then is, of course, detailing how that then goes from that one nation out towards the whole world. It says here in Psalm 19, it says, The law is perfect. There is truth in many books. There is truth in many forms of media. But only one is perfect. It is perfect, sure, right, pure, true, clear. Do you see these words here? It revives the soul. It makes wise the simple. It rejoices the heart. It enlightens the eyes. And it warns. These are all the things that scripture does. It says the precepts of the Lord. Precepts of the Lord. Because to act according to them is to have God's pleasure. To act against him is to earn his displeasure. To rebel against truth is to rebel against the way that the Creator has designed the creation to work. When it says Scripture is the Word of God is true, it is straight, it means it never errs. You know what I mean? It's always giving you a direction that is good, not leading you down a false path. And what that tells us, in in God's word and rightly understood, it means that there's a freedom within which we live. I've talked about this, and I'm going to talk about it more. That when we live outside of the bounds that God has set for us, that is slavery. We live in a culture that believes to have any sort of restriction is slavery. No. Freedom is found in living the way the Creator has called us to live. Slavery is what happens when we move outside of that, even though we might say, I'm free. No, you're a slave to your sins and your own desires. Our slavery comes from disobeying the law. Our freedom comes from believing this message of salvation, the good news of salvation in the name of Jesus Christ, and then seeking to live rightly in light of that message. We believe the gospel, and then we seek to live how God has commanded. We're told in verse 9 that the fear of the Lord is clean. Scripture helps us see something, that nature shows us that there is a God and that He is glorious. Scripture shows us that we are to worship Him and know Him and come before Him with reverence and awe. The fear of the Lord is clean, we're told. The Word of God exists to show us how to worship and enjoy the Creator rightly. Verse 10 I found so convicting, right? It says, More to be desired than fine gold and the purest honey. Note those adjectives. Fine gold, not just any gold. The word is to be desired like fine gold, the best gold. And the purest honey, straight out of the honeycomb. It's saying the best of the best, the greatest things you can possibly want. That is how you should desire the word. That is the value of the law and the gospel. And we should put this value on it because it has come to us from God. Moreover, by them in verse 11 it says your servant and keeping them warned and keeping them, there is great reward. This is the king of Israel, the most important man alive on the earth, saying, for himself, there is great reward in seeking to obey God's teaching. What he's saying is, if I gain the whole world, yet forfeit my soul, because I will not listen to God, I have nothing. But instead, he, because of the word, he has great satisfaction in life and godliness. And remember, this is a man who got a woman pregnant by committing adultery with her and killed her husband. As far as sinners go, David was quite up there. But as far as repenting and trusting and seeking God's forgiveness, that is the rest of his story. It shows us that there is forgiveness through understanding the word and understanding the gospel for all. I want us to to pull this to a little bit of application. I, I came up with eight points of application. I've shortened them write down, um, because there's so many. Before we look at these last three verses and see how this down points to Christ, how can we apply Psalm 19? I'm sure you'll come up with your own as well. Firstly, the need for contemplation and contemplative theology. Not an important, not a very um popular thing to say in 2019. This is not a prayer, apart from the very end. This is the psalmist contemplating who God is and what he has done. There is a necessary component of the Christian life, and that is simple contemplation. And that is very hard to do while we're all distracted, right? Fair? Yeah? contemplation is a good, godly thing. This psalm is an example of it. There are many people in this church that really like theology. That is a good thing and is not a bad thing done rightly. And one aspect of theology is to contemplate who God is and what he has done. You see, what's happened over the last few decades in the West is that we've viewed uh, theology as something... It's often that we can just that we can just put to the side, and that it is only that which is incredibly practical that is necessary. And unfortunately, contemplation goes by the wayside. Theology often goes by the wayside because it is not viewed as practical. Well, thinking about God rightly and knowing Him rightly is a way of loving God with your heart and mind and soul and strength. And therefore, it has value, and this psalm shows us. Secondly, there's a, we should understand the complementary relationship between God's two words, right? We've got the word of nature, we've got the word of Scripture. Let me ask you a question. Those two words, nature, scripture, which one is most true? Which one speaks most truthfully, nature or scripture? Anyone? The answer that most Christians want to go towards and we all get drawn towards is to say scripture. That's not true. They're both true. They're both from God. All truth is God's truth, so writes Thomas Aquinas. They have different purposes, and therefore we need to see how they fit together. Thomas Aquinas was a a theologian from the medieval period. Okay, that makes him Catholic, I know, forgive me, okay? But I want to read something that I read on Aquinas. And Aquinas taught that while we know some things from the Bible, such as the Trinity and salvation, we know other things by studying God's revelation in nature. An example of the latter would be our understanding of the human body. That comes from general revelation and from nature. Finally, he said that there were some things that we can know from special revelation and from natural revelation. An example of this is the knowledge that God exists. Both words are true. We must see the limitations in each one. I say this often. The Bible is not a handbook for how to fix the engine in your car. It is the word of God. It is true. It is pure. And it is the greatest thing that we hold in our hands. But it is inerrant and infallible for that which it is designed for. These two words complement one another. As Aquinas says, all truth is God's truth. So let's bring up that topic then of how to understand science. Many will say that science and religion are in opposition to one another. And they shouldn't be. They really should not be. We should love science. We should love philosophy. We should love learning and literature and all these kind of things. Science only works with the Creator who establishes the laws of nature and gives us laws of logic. Otherwise, think about this. If there wasn't an unchanging God overseeing this creation, how else could we possibly observe things and do experiments and measure things that are consistent and repeatable? How else could our speech and our arguments be logical? How could the courtroom happen without the laws of non-contradiction? God makes all these things possible. And what this means is, is when these two words contradict each other, the errors are ours. Do we agree? The errors are ours. Another way, and we've kind of already touched on this, another way we see this complementary way nature and scripture work together is that nature is providing a testimony to God And so what this tells us, and Paul and Barnabas used this as an example, God has given a witness to himself, and we are allowed to use that witness to talk to other people and to talk to people who suppress the truth. And the story of scripture then is that God has spoken to all and then he's given a special revelation to some and then in Acts chapter 2, that message then goes from Jerusalem to Judea, Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth in the language of the local people and that special revelation is then going out that the earth may be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we must understand the complementary nature between these two words. Thirdly, I would say we should be a people, though humble, who prize certainty. Because God is true and right and he gives truth. We should be people that prize truth and seek to know the truth. And thirdly, how very simple to say, how very hard to do. We should have a high view of Scripture. We should have a high view of that word. We should prize it. We should read it. Why leave it closed? Why not have it in our hearts, in our minds, in our ears? We should read it. We should share it. I want to finish by looking at the last uh, three verses briefly. Do we see in verses 12, 13, and 14, the word of Scripture is applied in a prayer. Let's read it again. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my Redeemer. We've been singing that song, and now we see where that phrase comes from. This is the psalmist coming before God. He's acknowledging that the Word has no errors in it, but there is error within him. There is fault, it is found in him. He prays a prayer, and it's a cry to be kept from woeful sinning. Presumptuous sins, meaning sinning with pride, saying, I'm going to sin anyway, even though I know it's right, and I'm just going to do it. But Paul speaking against in Romans 6 1. Shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? He's praying and saying, keep me from these things. He wants to be blameless before God. He wants to be innocent before God. He knows that the sun's heat, just like the judgment of God, comes down on all people. And he knows that he needs to be innocent and blameless before the creator. There's a prayer for grace. A request for forgiveness, a desire to change and not remain the way he is. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you. You know that within the evangelical church as a whole, there's a something that concerns me. There's a desire there's a desire to make sure the outside of the cup looks clean. That we all look prim and proper and good on the outside, but it doesn't really matter if we're arrogant and prideful and covetous in anything, as long as we look respectable. This tells us, no, may the meditations of my heart May the words of my mouth, may the things that I say, the things that come here, may they, those things be pleasing to you. That is what is showing. This is, this is an application of that judgment of God, that all-seeingness of God. That is what we should strive for. And the way this happens is through Christ. When he says, O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer, he's talking about the one who saves. My Lord. My rock, the one on whom I build my life. And my redeemer. Redeemer is the one who pays the price required to write that which has been broken. A redeemer is one who lays down what is required to pull someone out of slavery. The psalmist David is admitting I need this. I need, I have a Redeemer and I need grace. I need mercy. He looks to the only source of hope. And this points us to Christ. We should understand Psalm 19 through Christological eyes very quickly. You know, it says that in John chapter one and in Colossians chapter one and it says in Ephesians that all things were created through him, the son. Nature is seen in new light when we understand that Jesus Christ is the one who created all things, and in him all things hold together. Why is there logic? Why is there things that are observable and consistent? Why can we do science? Why can we write poetry? Why can we do our jobs? Why do computers and electricity work? Because Christ holds all things together by the word of his power. So the word of nature testifies to him, and then the scope of scripture testifies to him. In John 5, Jesus said, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Yes, the scriptures testify to salvation, but they're testifying to one in whom salvation is found. Both books are tied up in this Christ. He is the word of nature. He is the word of the law. That need that the word of nature and that word of law show, he fulfills it because he is the living word of the gospel. He committed no sin. He kept the law perfectly. He was perfectly righteous on our behalf. And therefore he is able to be our rock and our redeemer that all those who will trust in him, who repent of their sins and trust in him for salvation shall be saved and able to say, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, that we might be acceptable in his sight.